This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. This episode is intended as a kind of complement to the previous one uh, in which Clara and I talked about Star Trek's depictions of suicide and parasuicidal behaviour. In the course of that conversation, I mentioned an interview I did uh, last year with Dan Davidson from the Trek Geeks podcast network, talking about his own experience. Um, Some of you might have heard this story before. He was basically uh, on the point of ending his own life. And then it was an episode of Deep Space Nine, Captive Pursuit, that actually turned things around for him and I interviewed Dan uh, a while ago for an article I was writing for the Guardian newspaper here in the UK about uh, fans whose lives had been dramatically changed uh, for the better by Star Trek and I just thought having gone into this topic in some depth with Clara in the previous episode uh, and having mentioned this interview that it actually might be interesting for people to hear Dan's story in a bit more detail so I I got in touch with him and asked if he'd be happy for me to share the interview that I did with him and he said absolutely he'd love for people to hear it so just bear in mind this was uh this is going to be a slight reduction probably in our usual audio quality this is just a Skype call so um you might notice a difference in the sound quality but hopefully the quality is good enough for it to be worth listening to um and I do think it's an extraordinary story uh, and a very inspiring one in a way um if you want to hear more of Dan's story uh check out Trek Geeks in particular check out their episode 114 on Captive Pursuit uh where he also uh talks about this story in in some more detail there as well. But anyway, I hope you find this an interesting and uh, engaging discussion about a very important topic. Maybe we could start off actually just by talking a little bit about how you sort of first got into Star Trek. You know, what was your kind of first exposure? Was it as a kid, uh, as it was with me? Yes, it was. um, Growing up in the 70s, I I didn't like Star Trek. My brother, my older brother, mm-hmm. got to watch what he wanted, and I wanted to watch stuff like Gilligan's Island and Brady Bunch. But he was the older kid, so we got to watch Star Trek when dinner was on and after dinner. So I kind of right. didn't like it. But as I was forced to watch it, it grew on me, and uh, <laughs> I really started to appreciate it and and love it, and looked forward to watching it as often as possible. And so was that what? When were you born, if you don't mind me asking? I was born in 1969. Um, so it was, okay, fine. I was 
I was born so a was, week after watching... the final episode aired, I believe. I have to, I have wow. to double check Amazing. that, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, 1969, <clears throat> and mm-hmm. I think I started watching it with a passion 1977, 76, somewhere around there, okay, right around the right. time the first movie came out, actually. Ah, right. Okay, fine. So it was original series reruns. That was your that was your Star Trek. Even if Absolutely. And it was it my Star run, Trek but, yeah. right up into the mid 80s, uh, of mm-hmm. course, with everybody else. You know, with just having movies, it's a little different not having something to look at all the time at home. Having to wait for the movie to come out every several years was kind of a drag. So it was sure. just the reruns. Um, yeah. Eventually in the 80s with the invention of VHS, I started mm-hmm. collecting episodes on tape. So I'd have mm-hmm. them all the time playing and then you watched next gen sort of right from the start yeah it was actually in college in colorado uh when Uh the premiere was on and i i didn't have a tv in my room but a friend of mine did so we all gathered in her room and watched the uh, the first episode i I very distinctly remember sitting on the floor looking up at the tv uh when it was (laughs) on and was not impressed. <laughs> really? <laughs> but yeah, that yeah. too grew on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't kind of abandon ship anyway. You, you stuck with it long enough to get into DS9, presumably, um, mm-hmm. when that was first showing as well. Yeah, I um, I grew to love TNG very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, when all of the announcements for new shows came out with you know DS9 and then Voyager and Enterprise, mm-hmm. I was very very excited. Deep Space Nine took me a season to uh, to to really get into. Also, mm-hmm. um, I I really liked TNG where it had gone in the seasons uh, up to uh, Deep Space Nine starting, but season one's kind of slow. There's some, yeah. there's some episodes in that first season that aren't great. But as with a lot of the Star Trek series, it takes a, a season to get under the to get their feet, so to speak. Um, and then it really took off. It became my all-time favorite right away. And, of course, mm-hmm. with the events that took place with me, it, it's got a very special place as, as my favorite. I bet. No, absolutely. And, I mean, ironically, I guess the fact that it was actually a very early episode that um, mm-hmm. had that played that kind of key role for you i mean do you remember watching captive pursuit kind of first time around do you, do you remember did it stand out to you at the time or is it only you know kind of i i don't think it did but because mm-hmm. it has such strong meaning because of what happened when i was watching it on a videotape that particular mm-hmm. night that kind of clouds anything from beforehand uh, on what i remember I bet, about yeah. it uh I, I, you know this is this is kind of um vaguely remembering i used to be a flight attendant and i flew to south mm-hmm. africa uh from washington dulles airport for for about a year and a half or so and i do remember that it was on television at my hotel in johannesburg south africa at one point mm-hmm. um that's the only other real memory i have about that episode prior to uh the events that took place in 2000 so it was 2000, um, mm-hmm. was it? That's when we were talking. So how old would you have been then? Sort of early 30s? Is that uh, 30, uh, 31. 31, right, okay. So maybe and, probably still 30 plus. I don't think I turned 31 yet. <laughs> and what were, you, what were you doing? What was your job then? I was in IT also. Uh, I, had, uh-huh. I had had a couple of starting uh, positions in IT or in the early 90s. Um, and I was well into my career at that point working for a large uh, uh firm at that point uh as an it specialist as i am today i'm an it professional now as well and where was that 
It was in Merrimack, New Hampshire. I lived in Nashville okay. at the time. Um, uh-huh. And uh, I actually met my podcast partner, Bill, uh, mm-hmm. at Trek Geeks, through this company. We met um, oh, when okay. we were working in the same department, and our friendship was actually born out of the uh, love of Star Trek that we had at the time. I had Star Trek memorabilia on my desk when he started. Mm-hmm. I started a, a, just a little bit before him, and um, when he saw that stuff on my desk, we kind of hit it off, and, and here we are. 25 years later <laughs> so you were working in it you were you were married is that right you, you i was married uh, at the yeah. time to somebody else um uh-huh. and had some pretty devastating stuff happen to me in the in late 99 which bled into right. 2000 uh which started the whole process of uh, what happened with me uh and captain pursuit and what i mean you don't have to go into all the details if you don't want to mm-hmm. but, i mean sort of broadly speaking I think you said you, you you lost your job, you left your job. I mean, what were the kind of... Yeah, the, the, I won't get into the specific details of what happened because sure. I like to focus on the fact that Star Trek actually saved me yeah, uh, from mm-hmm. the, the tough times. But it was, looking back in retrospect, I didn't kill anybody. I wasn't involved mm-hmm. in drugs. I didn't commit a felony or any of that mm-hmm. stuff. But I, I, I acted stupidly and it caused some pretty strong ramifications and ripples right. in my life. Um, I did have to leave my job as a result of it because it was kind of a public incident. Um, I, uh, I ended up not no longer being married pretty much as a result of that, which turned out to be a very positive thing in, in Uh retrospect. And based on everything that happened with civil, uh, action and, and so forth, I had to actually sell the house I was living in so that I could help to pay off that civil, uh, civil judgment. Mm -hmm. So everything was pretty, pretty terrible. Um, mm-hmm. the relationship that I was in at the time was a very controlled one. Mm-hmm. So when I was going through my difficult times and, and really needed help and, and needed support and family, uh, I, I was pretty much forced not to be able to do that. It was, it was just me, uh, and my, and my partner at the time. And instead of any comfort and, you know, we'll get through this. It was, you've ruined our lives. You've ruined my life. I can't believe you did this. And that, right. that really starts to weigh on you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're going through a very tough time. And so it was it basically, so your, your, your work situation was kind of up in the air or, or you'd already left, I guess, by that point. And your, mm-hmm. and your marriage was kind of on the rocks, I guess, by the sounds of it yep. as a result of it as well. And, and what your partner was preventing you from getting in touch with your family, basically for support. So we, Pretty much. Um, yeah. Why, the incident that, that took place was, yeah. was very family-related, um, right. and I needed to have that support from them, um, and I just was unable to get it. Right. So if you can imagine when, when things are really, really bad and you think that there's never going to be anything to get better, you're mm-hmm. literally in a room, shades closed, all day long thinking about what happened and it just snowballs and gets worse Mm -hmm. and worse. And then you're getting that um, you've ruined everything constantly being thrown at you, which makes you feel even worse. I had the guilt of what had happened already and that just amplified it. And it it just got to the point where I couldn't take it. You'd let people down kind of thing. I mean, you'd let your family down as well as your wife. Absolutely correct. Duncan, I was raised to I was raised the right way by my parents. I was told, you know, always respect people. IDIC, which I didn't really understand when I was a kid, of course, um, 
I was taught always accept people for who they are, always do the right thing to people, always be the better person. And in the incident that happened, I wasn't. I took advantage of that knowledge and kind of threw it out the window for a brief moment, which caused a avalanche of problems. So was this a work thing or it was a, like a personal thing? No, it was thing? a personal thing. I can get right, into okay. a little bit of detail. It might help shed a little bit of light on, on, on the incident. Uh, my father was a political figure in the town that I lived in at the time. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, he had been in a an alderman in the in the city for twenty plus years. Uh, he had run for mayor and was mayor of the city, and he ran for re-election. Um, and as with any political figure, there's going to be people that don't agree with him and aren't going to like the way he does things. And there was a particular individual who was very vocal about the way he did not like what my dad did uh, as as mayor, and. When re-election came around, my father was defeated uh, by a very small amount of votes. And that night, this particular gentleman was quoted in the paper saying some things that I really didn't like. And instead of just putting it in my back pocket and saying that's what happens, I reacted to it. And the way I reacted was by attacking his religion. And I did it publicly. And it caused a firestorm. And it was a deserved yeah. firestorm. I yeah. did something that was abhorrent and disgusting. And I I never have felt um, that I didn't deserve it. I've always felt that I deserve what happened because I was taught not to do that. And I did it anyway. Had you been brought up uh, with a religious faith yourself or, or not? Yes. Uh, it, it, yeah. was, it was not one that, you know, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't a you know powerful like we have to do these things a certain way, but we did have a religious uh, uh, segment mm-hmm. to the family. We went to church every week and and okay. went to CCD as I was when I was young to learn about all all the things in the Bible, this that and the other thing. And I mm-hmm. carry religion in my heart, um, mm-hmm. which is another reason why what happened is so vile to me is because I was uh, I was taught through my parents and through through growing up uh, with being the church in my, with having the church in my life that these are things that you don't do um, but right. sometimes we lose our way I guess is the best way to put it and I lost my way and I did the exact opposite of what I would do 999,999 times out of a million sure yeah yeah and what it kind of snowballed it got picked up in the press or I mean what was the the impact it kind of people yeah, found it, out um, about it anyway it, it, it certainly got picked up in the press um, it became headline a headline story uh, there was it was it was there was i was eventually i was eventually charged with a misdemeanor um and had to go to court for that um and that got, having said said mm-hmm. this inappropriate thing yes right okay. um the way that i had said this inappropriate thing was by way of um anonymously sending an email right. uh, which was traced which I totally understand. Um, and when I was uh, yeah. when I was brought to the police to be questioned about it, I I immediately told them yes, it was me. I don't, you know, I'm not going to hide anything. There's no reason to. Mm-hmm. So it did become public. Um, there was a there was a trial, so that was public. That was in the paper. So you know, I was getting phone calls and and crank calls and all kinds of things like that. And of course my work heard about it and you know it's very you know something public like that uh it certainly makes sense that you don't want somebody who's going through something that public associated with the company you work with so 
they asked me to mm-hmm. resign, which I did. I felt it was the right thing to do. Right. Um, yeah. And your father presumably must have, I mean, I mean uh, when you, you said you felt you were letting people down, I guess that being the situation, you must have felt you were kind of letting, not, I mean, letting yourself down in that you did the wrong thing, but also letting your your father down if he was if you were sort of doing it on his behalf do you know what i mean and it's not what he would have wanted you know what what, one of the things that bothers me to this day and it's been 20 years is i've always felt that dad feels that it was his fault in some way which is something i would never want him to think um he's always been in the political uh spotlight in our hometown and growing up as kids he always stressed that he was sorry that you know we'd go to school and kids would would be yelling at us because their parents didn't agree with something that he was doing when he was when he was um alderman uh, president of the board or, or whatnot so he's always had that kind of burden on his shoulders that he thinks that he hurt us in some way which he never did so when this happened i think he really felt that it was over the top his fault which it was not it was it was me doing something stupid, lashing out because I was mad that somebody said yeah. something about somebody that I loved. Um, all through the time that mm-hmm. this occurred and after, we have never really sat down to discuss it. I think we both appreciate the boundary of it's something that I don't want him to feel it's his fault and he doesn't want me to it's hard it's hard to put into words i think duncan it's just it's just a it's just a situation that took place that we both now know is over but i think we both will always carry some kind of a burden but i don't feel that his burden is one that he should carry i feel it should always be on me okay so tell me a little bit so you'd lost your job Your, Mm -hmm. your wife was angry with you about what you'd done you weren't really in touch with your family particularly um and so this is the period where you were kind of at, at your lowest, I guess. And you mentioned you had these old Star Trek tapes. I mean, were you watching them a lot to try to sort of give you some kind of consolation at that at that time? Is that what was going on? That's one of the great things about Star Trek. It allows you to escape the world into this mm-hmm. other world when you need to. So, yes, I did do that. I was home alone a lot of the times uh, because, of course, she worked so I would be at home. I would not go out. I didn't want to be seen by anybody. I felt that everybody would be looking at me and everybody knew that what I had done. Um, You just, Mm -hmm. you're paranoid and and you're scared. So I was inside all the time. So I did have several VHS tapes because I would eventually, as the shows were on, I would tape them and, and, and pause during commercials so that I could have them saved for later. This was before DVDs or anything like that. Um, So I would, I would have them pretty much all the time. And, and like you said, Things were bad. You get to a low point, and I, I had decided that I could not take this anymore. It was it was unbearable, and I was going to commit suicide. I had planned everything. I had written letters. Um, I knew that I was going to do it. I was able to uh, get my hands on a thirty-eight revolver, um, so I had everything that I needed to end the pain, so to speak. Uh, I was up in the loft of of the condo that i had at the time i was alone nobody was home uh mm-hmm. i was uh, the loft had um some kind of customized furniture there was a futon in there i was sitting on the futon and i had a bunch of stuff laid out on the table in front of me including the letters uh the gun some pictures um 
and I had thrown in, as I usually do, I had thrown in a VHS tape. Um, and this one was a Deep Space Nine, and it was playing on the background. And I, I knew that it was time. I knew that I, uh, I was ready to do it. I was crying, and I, I literally put the gun in my mouth. I had the hammer pulled back, and as I was, as people who have gotten to this point, because I know that there are a lot of people that have and who have not gone through with it. Even as certain as you are, at least I feel this way, certain as you are that you're going to do it, there's hesitation. And I was at that hesitation moment, but I was planning on doing this. And as I was looking up, I was looking kind of straight ahead where the TV was, and Captive Pursuit happened to be the episode that was playing at the time. And as I was sitting there, there was a scene taking place where O'Brien was literally sacrificing everything that he had accomplished in his life with his career and his family to help a stranger. He had not known Tosk very long at all, and he was willing to end his career in Starfleet, face um, face consequences, because he wanted to help someone who he considered a friend. And he was saying that every life is important. And that was the moment that stopped me from pulling the trigger. Um, I, I remember laying on the ground, curling up in a ball and just, and just bawling for, I don't know how long. Um, but it was that moment that that episode stopped me from doing it. Things didn't get better right away, but at least I was still alive to allow them to get better. It gave you a kind of hope, I suppose, in a way. I mean, it sounds like it was almost as if O'Brien was talking to you in that. Do you know what I mean? In that moment, they often say that, you know, with someone who's at that point where they're considering uh, suicide or, or they're kind of, a, you know, about to do it. That often it's they will say, you know, with someone on a bridge or whatever, it's just about getting them talking for long enough. And it's mm-hmm. kind of, it's sort of making that, you know, normally a human connection. But in a way, the fact that you were able to have that human connection with someone who, you know, who you'd never met, who wasn't in the room, but who was on the screen in front of you. Mm-hmm. But I suppose maybe partly because of you know, because it's Star Trek and because that meant a lot to you and because of the kind of values of compassion and helping people. And do you know what I mean? That must have played into it. The fact that it's amazing doing a very kind of Starfleet thing, isn't it? You know, absolutely. It's amazing when, when you, when I've had so many years to, to think about this, that something that you never would expect to be the thing that helped me get through this was a science fiction television show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, normally, you know, back then I was not aware of, of the suicide hotlines that they have today and mm-hmm. that you can get help by a variety of different things. When you're feeling this stuff, you feel that you're the only person in the world and there's nothing that can be done to help you. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's awful. It's excruciating. And that's the point I was, I was at when, when Bill and I talk about this on the podcast, we always reference the suicide prevention hotline and we always talk mm-hmm. about how there are always people to, help you don't expect it to be from a television screen where the person's not actually talking to you but in that moment he's talking to you people always talk about star trek as being this kind of optimistic hopeful Mm -hmm. view of the future and i think all of that is true but i mean from my sense from my own experience and also a lot of people i talk to i think the characters are as much a part of that as the kind of society do you know what i mean a lot of it is aspirational but it's not just aspirational for kind of human beings in some general sort of geopolitical sense it's aspirational in terms like these are people who are you know, who always do the right thing, whether it's easy or difficult or do you know what I mean? It's aspirational on a kind of human level. That's what I think I love so much about Star Trek is 
you have that vision of the future, the in quotes, I say vision of the future that Gene always talked about. And then you have these characters that tell their stories. And these characters have problems just like we do. But there's mm-hmm. still that aspect of the future and all in, in, in inclusivity and, and people helping each other that mm-hmm. really stands out and makes the show such an enjoyable one to watch. Even when you have series that deal with war, you have the Dominion War and millions and millions of people are getting killed. They still have that vision of being right and just. And even though these characters can have horrible experiences happen to them, they are still there for other people when it's needed. And that's what I think is fantastic mm. about about that universe. Mm, absolutely. And actually, I mean, O'Brien, I think, is an interesting one because he's not kind of it's not Captain Picard who always does the right thing. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of almost perfect it's someone who is a bit more human and a bit more flawed but at the same time i always remember you know that episode children of time where they they find the planet full of their descendants yes and o'brien has a really tough time because he's sort of saying i'm not going to see my wife my daughter again I, do you know what i mean like he's really mm-hmm. resisting doing the right thing but eventually he comes around to it and he he has to do the do you, do you know what i mean to do the right thing for the group of people however right. much it costs him personally but i think it's that sort of something of the way ds9 plays that day it's not easy it's not a kind of straightforward yes of course we always do the right thing it's kind of it's showing that that can be hard but we do it anyway you know that's that's one of the things i love about deep space nine and why it's my all-time favorite series i think season late season three through the rest of the series is some of the best written television we've ever seen because it's not what we expect Mm -hmm. in star trek it's dark it's it's vicious it's war and these characters make mistakes and they have flaws and they are still able to give us what we expect in star trek with great stories that really go to the heart of what humanity is all about i i that's a great example of what you of what you said with with the planet of descendants he is really hell-bent about staying he doesn't want to stay he wants to get home to molly and he wants to get home to keiko and then he changes his mind when he sees that there are going to be these thousands of people that are going to be wiped out of existence he it's it's funny you use o'brien as the example we always talk about how o'brien just is the punching bag on deep space nine there's so many episodes where he goes through some kind of torturous moment or or is thrown in prison or has memories thrown in his head about being in prison for 20 years he just always is the one who gets the short end of the stick it seems in deep space nine yet here he is in season one being one of the most um uh helpful characters of the of the whole show in putting his neck on the line for somebody that he really doesn't even know well, plus we know, you know, he's he's had a tough time himself, hasn't he? I mean, we know his mm-hmm. backstory and, you know, it's not a an easy one necessarily. Um, right. Just before we sort of move forward, maybe can we just talk a little bit more about the kind of circumstances kind of leading up to that moment? Uh, sure. I'm kind of curious. Um, do, do you remember the point? Because, I mean, first of all, to get a sense of how how much time this kind of played out over. I mean, from the time, like, say, when you when this thing happened, when you lost your job to being there at home on your own day after day to making that decision that you that you wanted to end your life and actually going you know, going about the kind of preparation mm-hmm. for it i mean what kind of is that something that took place over a period of, of many weeks or months or did it happen quite quickly or everything what were the, the incident itself took place in december of 99 
everything became public in late January and everything was snowballing into late February, early March. So it was only it was a span of several weeks, a couple of months where right. it just got to the point where it was I, I couldn't take it anymore. Okay. You know, it, it, it felt like it was kind of not letting off, basically. It was exactly. Fun. And again, yeah. now that it's been 20 years and I've had the forgiveness, which we can get into later, looking back, it wasn't a long stretch of time, but it felt like years were going by that mm. it was just that constant guilt, you know, because it was a public thing. There were things in the paper pretty regularly, letters to the editor. Uh, still getting phone calls, all that kind of stuff. So um, every time the phone rings, you know, you'd be nervous about what's on the other end. It got to the point where I wouldn't answer them. I have to wait for the answering machine to kick in before I would know whether or not I should answer it. Very, you get to be very paranoid that no matter what happens, at any moment something's going to happen to bring you down even further. And so, do you remember the point where you actually made that decision that you, you know, that you you couldn't cope with it anymore, and that you were going to to end it? Do you remember making that decision and going out? I mean, you said you had to go and get a gun from somewhere, yep. so you must have had to sort of. I don't remember the exact moment. I think just mm-hmm. with everything that happened, it was it was very it was very hard to be in the house that I was in and the home that I was in, knowing that at any moment something could be said to me that would bring me down even further. Mm-hmm. And that constant pressure of, of guilt and wondering what's going to happen next, because you always think it's going to get worse, no matter how bad it is. You just get to the point where you, you, you can't deal with it anymore. So I don't remember the exact time and point where I said, I have to just do this. Um, but I, I think for me, it may have been a more spontaneous thing, maybe within a day or so, where I'm just going to go get mm-hmm. this gun. I'm going to do it. I, where did you go? Did you go to a shop or did you? I mean, I, I knew where I could get one. Let's just put it that way. Um, so I was able like from to, a friend or from a like a, yeah, a, kind of right, pretty much. Um, okay. Fine. And I was able to get it without any knowledge of the person knowing that I had had it. So that was another. I thing. see. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you took it without their, without right. knowing. <clears throat> right. Yeah, I was able okay, to fine. return it without their point either. So <laughs> luckily. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you were, you know, presumably keeping all of this from your wife at the time, the fact yes. that you were kind of making these plans and nobody um, knew what was going on at all. Nobody, yeah. not a single person. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and then you wrote out all the notes, you mm-hmm. wrote a note for her. You wrote a note. I mean, you, you write separate notes for different people. I did. I, I actually typed them out of yeah. my computer, which is kind of impersonal, I guess. But at the time, that's that's what I did. Um, yeah. I had ones for every member of my family and uh, my wife oh. at the time. That's pretty much it. It's funny. I, I can remember I had them all kind of spread out like a deck of cards on the table. Um, right. Basically, and you've seen it in movies and you've heard it. It's the it's the mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Um, I wish I could have been stronger type of thing. Uh, it basically they weren't long uh i'd never saved them i did i actually burnt them all after everything happened mm-hmm. and, and it was a long time sure. a very long time before my parents even knew that i had gone through this so far mm-hmm. in fact it was only recently uh, bill and i did an episode on this on trek geeks uh, a couple of mm-hmm. years ago 
And it was during that time frame that I actually told my parents what had happened because they were they were never aware. I didn't want to put them through that. Your parents parents sure. never want their children to die before them. And no, I felt that with everything that had happened and the fact that I knew my dad felt that it was his fault, even though we never really discussed it, I couldn't put that on him also. And, and just letting yeah. him know that this almost cost me my life, uh, my own yeah. stupidity. Um, so I, it's something I never really told them until just a few years ago. And so then after you, uh, sort of after that day, I mean, obviously, okay, so you'd stopped your, you'd kind of come back from the brink, but you still must have been in a pretty low place. I mean, what was that process like of kind of trying to put your life back together again? It was. Uh, and did Star Trek have a role to play in that? I mean, did you go back to those tapes again? Star Trek to kind of help you through that period, or had it had it done its job by that point? Oh no, it, it was very integral in my um coming back uh as i said earlier it's the place to escape to when you need to it was my place to go to when i needed to get away from the real world so star trek was extremely important to me during that recovery period um i had to go through a a quote-unquote criminal trial for the misdemeanor charge i actually had to spend uh, a week in the county uh jail uh, which I had no problem with doing. Um, it, it's something that had to happen. It happened. Um, I had to rebuild my life. I had to get odd jobs to be able to earn an income until I could get to the point where I could get back into the IT field. Uh, very, very slow process. I moved back into my parents' house uh, for a while after the, um, after the condo was sold. Uh, and that was a very low time also you know you i'm in my early 30s and i'm i'm living literally just like they say in, in joking I'm living in my parents basement so to speak um yeah and that was it was it was awful it was it was again i didn't want to do anything i didn't want to go anywhere i went to work i came home and just kind of sulked and tried to figure out how i was going to get my life put back together and this is something that i I've always believed in Duncan, and I and I say this to everybody when I talk about what happens. I would go through all of this, all over again, knowing what the end result was going to be. And I say that because when I was at my parents' house uh, one weekend in particular, it was in uh, June of 2002, I believe. Uh, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who lived in Rhode Island. I live in New Hampshire, and. She was having a problem with a laptop, and she was wondering if I could drive down to Rhode Island and fix it, knowing that I, I was an IT person. And I wasn't really interested. I didn't want to drive down to Rhode Island. I didn't have any energy to do stuff like that at the time. So I said, no, I'm going to pass. And she said, well, I really wish you'd reconsider. I got a friend of mine who's visiting from Maine. I'd love you to meet her. I think we'd have a good time just hanging out while you're working on the laptop. And I said, no, I appreciate it, and ended the phone call. And then the next morning, Sunday morning, I woke up, and I said, you know what? I have no life. I have nothing to do. I'm feeling miserable. Why am I going to just continue to sit here and feel sorry for myself? So I called her back and said, yeah, I'm coming down. Why don't you give me directions to uh, to get to your place? And I drove down to Rhode Island and got to her uh, apartment. I think it was apartment, yeah. And the person who was visiting from Maine was the woman who I ended up marrying. Uh, and I knew the day that I met her that I was going to fall in love with her. As strange and as storytelling as that may sound, 
love at first sight happens and it happened with susan and if all of this stuff didn't happen i would never have gone to rhode island that day and met her and we got married uh, about a year and a half later and been married for 16 years now a happy ending to a very difficult time it, it, it really and, is and am i right in thinking am i right in thinking from the star trek point of view as well that you were able eventually to talk to some of the actors from ds9 some of the, the people involved in making that episode and kind of uh, oh. share, sort of give that story back to them in a way to kind of close the circle in a way oh yeah i'll tell you what um f- for for a long time and this took place in 2000 it's now 2019 so almost 20 years mm-hmm. even though let me back up a little bit more a few years ago mm-hmm. uh, i had the opportunity to send a message of a positive message to the person that I did this to. And I was very shocked to get a reply and a very positive reply back. After that happened, over the course of a couple of situations, I was able to get together with this person. We spent several hours talking. I was forgiven, which caused me to break down again. (laughs) I was so just overjoyed because the guilt is something that I lived with every single day since it happened. I didn't just affect this one person. I infected a whole community and it's something that always bothered me. So for me to get forgiveness from this person was extremely important to me. And I felt that I had come full circle when that happened, but I didn't. I've always wanted to thank the people from deep space nine, particularly Cole Meany and Scott McDonald, because they were the two characters of this particular episode. Well, over the last couple of years, the documentary, What We Left Behind, was being filmed, and they were having fundraisers, which I was a very happy donator to. And at one point during the donation or during the, the fundraising drive, they came out with a special perk that for a certain dollar, you could have a behind-the-scenes meet-and-greet with the cast of Deep Space Nine at Star Trek Las Vegas uh, during the Deep Space Nine 25th anniversary a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So I immediately did that because I'm like, oh, my God, maybe I'll be able to meet some of the people. Unfortunately, I was not able to. Colm and Scott were not there. But I did get to talk with several people, including Terry Farrell. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she was very gracious. She was teary-eyed when I, when I had a few minutes to explain quickly what had happened. I've got a great picture of us hugging. So I thought that was great. I'm sorry, that was that was the year before Deep Space Nine's 25th. Last year was Deep Space Nine's 25th anniversary, and at STLB, Colmini was going to be there. So I was ecstatic. So I signed up for a photo op, autograph, and I was going to be able to tell them my story. Well, it turns out sometimes the actors that are going to be at STLB are only there for a certain amount of time, and it turns out his um, day was going to be Wednesday, which was the day that we were flying out to Vegas. Um, from New Hampshire to Vegas takes quite a long time. And if everything went right, you would get there in time for me to be able to see him. But of course that day we had to have mechanical problems on the plane, this, that, and the other thing. So I didn't think it was going to happen. So I was, I was a little distraught. I was upset, but I had a couple of friends who were already at STLV, knew my story and knew that I was going to be late. So they scrambled, talked to whomever they could And when I got to Vegas, I was immediately rushed off uh, by a friend of mine 
uh, Haley Stoddard, who's also a podcaster. She pretty much mm-hmm. put this on her shoulders and ran with it. We got to a creation representative that had arranged for me to have a few moments with Colm. So uh, they actually took me backstage. He was there, uh, shook his hand said how, what an honor it was to meet him and actually then put my hand on his shoulder and I said so Colm I got a little story to tell you <laughs> and I told him what happened and he was just he, he was speechless he didn't know what to say I, I hugged him and I said I said if it were not for you and what happened in this episode Captain Pursuit I would be dead so you have my eternal I, I will be grateful forever um, he was he was so wonderful he was it was it was such a moment to be able to to tell him my story and tell him that just by playing a character on television he was able to save a life uh, because he did yeah. so i thought that was absolutely fantastic and as an added bonus this year at SDLV, i was walking in the vendors room and scott mcdonald who played toss was at the table and i didn't know he was going to be there so i went up to him and i shook his hand and I asked him if he had a few minutes and, and I told him my story. And again, he was, it was the same reaction. I don't think anybody who said, who was listening to somebody tell them that you saved my life. It's kind of hard to compute when it's thrown at you really quick like that. Um, but he was yeah. very gracious. Um, it was wonderful to be able to talk to him. So I have had the complete full circle from this incident um, with almost committing suicide Captain Pursuit playing, saving my life, going through 19 years of struggle and but then happiness and a great life now and finally meeting the two specific people who helped save my life. It was it was phenomenal. I absolutely loved being able to meet both of them. And that must give you a kind of sense of closure in some way on the story. Is you know, right? it kind of do you know what I mean? It. It it doesn't. Or is it it something doesn't. that's always always an open, you, you know, something that's never far from your mind. I don't know. I mean, is it is it something you completely moved on from, or is it something that is always a part of you? It's you know, funny. It's not. Um, I don't think it ever will be. And it's funny because Bill and I talk about this a lot. He goes, you know, it's it's time to let it go, man. And and for some reason, I feel that I have a responsibility in some way to not let it go. I it's so much happened because of it. Because of, of what I did, Bill and I's friendship was affected for almost a decade. We didn't see each other for almost a decade because one of the things I did was take advantage of his friendship during that entire – during the incident prior to everything mm-hmm. happening. So we felt that we needed to put some distance between us for a little while, which I totally understood. And by chance, we mm-hmm. ran into each other at a restaurant about 10 years later, and the friendship rekindled and has been wonderful ever since. But mm-hmm. – it's always something that I carry with me. It, just this morning, for example, knowing that I was going to be talking to you when I was in the shower, things start popping into my head about what happened. It used to be a daily occurrence. Every single day for upwards of 15 years, it would be in my mind. Some point during the day, I would think about it. That doesn't happen anymore. It still happens, but it's not every day. So I have moved on in a way. But I feel that I never really should move on completely because it was such a devastating part of my life. And I affected so many people that I've never even met by being as ugly as I was. It's always something that I'll carry in me because it was something that I shouldn't have done. 
it's hard to put into words actually um uh, some people that i i've talked to about it are like it it wasn't really that big a deal when you look at it and to me it was the biggest deal in the world ever there was nothing that could have gotten worse i couldn't have done anything more evil or disgusting than i did and it's just the way you know when people people can never fully understand the depth of despair and, and guilt that somebody feels over something that they've done, which may not be an end of the world event, but for that person and for me at that time, it was an end of the world event. But obviously, fortunately, it didn't work out that way. You were able, you know, to move forward, and you know, thanks to that episode of DS9 coming on at just the right time to mm-hmm. kind of um, get your life back on track and I, you know, I, get yourself in a good place again. So you got through it. I got through it, and I really feel that there was some kind of a guardian angel that day. It, it, it's mm-hmm. it's amazing that just a, a moment can prevent something like that happening. And and there's there's got to be a, a something that helps that happen. So I've always felt that I was, that I was being watched over that day. And it's not it's never easy to talk about this. Bill and I went back and forth for months whether we were going to do an episode on the podcast about this story. And I finally decided, you know what? It's time to tell the story. It's time to share what happened to me. And the reason that I decided to do it is this. It's embarrassing to talk about it. It brings back the memories. But if I'm able to help one person, even just one person, get through a tough time, if I can be tossed, as what Scott McDonald said to me, which absolutely blew me away. He said, you are now Tosk. If I can be that person to help someone else, then it's all worth it. It's all worth the bad feelings, the the, the embarrassment, and so forth. And I've actually yeah. had one specific person sent me an email after that Captain Pursuit episode of the podcast came out, where this person thanked me for sharing my story because, as he said, this podcast episode was his captive pursuit because he was about to commit suicide and he listened to the podcast and stopped, which I, I can't even relate to. I can't even fathom that. So now I sign up with Coleman and Scott McDonald feel uh, when I told them my story. So it's all worth it. Um, I've got the best life I could ever hope for um, with my wife and my family and my, my friends and job. And, and everything and to think that i was literally seconds away from ending everything and causing my family to have you know thoughts and guilt or, or whatever if i had done it i was able to prevent that from happening so there's help out there for people that are that are having trouble but i'll always say that star trek saved my life because it literally did Well, I hope you found that an interesting discussion. Uh, I'm very grateful to Dan for talking to me originally um, for the piece I was writing and again for sharing that story here so I could um, share it with all of you. Just before I go, I thought I would mention once again the hotline numbers that Clara and I mentioned uh, in the last episode. For anyone in the UK, the number for the Samaritans is 116123. And for anyone listening in the United States, the number is 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Absolutely, if you are in a situation similar to the one that um, Dan describes, those are the people to uh, get in touch with and get some help. 
Anyway, I hope you found it an interesting discussion and thank you all for listening. You're blended already.